So this this breakout session is actually assuming a little bit what I talked about, which I don't assume you were here yesterday when I talked about the uh, warning passages. So I'm just going to say a, a little something uh, about that. My understanding of the warning passages, specifically I'm talking about the warning passages in Hebrews, is that the that God, the warnings in Hebrews, I argued, are addressed to Christians, and they're the means God uses to keep us in the faith. They are the, they are one of the means. They're not the only means. So, so that the warnings are absolutely serious. If we, if we deny Jesus, he will, he will deny us. So we must, we must persevere until the end, uh, to be saved. But now I want to ask the question, what is perseverance? Or really, more accurately, I want to say what it isn't in this talk. Because I've, I've talked about these things for a number of years, and I think people misunderstand uh, perseverance. Some people misunderstand perver- perseverance in terms of perfection. Some people misunderstand it in terms of kind of a works righteousness. So that, that really really the title of my talks is talk is perseverance is not perfection and I have six points and um, hopefully we'll have time a little time for discussion as well. So here here's my first point. Perseverance is not perfection because we pray regularly for the forgiveness of our sins. Perseverance is not perfection because we pray regularly for the forgiveness of our sins. Where do we find that? Well, we find that in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? I I grew up as a Roman Catholic. I was saved when I was 17. As a Roman Catholic, we memorized this prayer. I prayed it hundreds, probably thousands of times. But I have to say, all the times I prayed it, I prayed it thoughtlessly and mechanically and uh, without any uh, thought of what I was doing. Of course, I wasn't a believer. On the other hand, on the other hand, Protestants often don't pray this prayer regularly. <laughs> Jesus did teach us this prayer so that we would, I think, memorize it and pray it quite regularly. But in our church life, I think there are many churches where years can go by where this prayer is not even prayed in, in corporately together. Surely it was given to us so we'd pray it together and individually. So, but my fundamental point here is chapter 6, verse 12. What does the prayer say? It says, forgive us, in verse 12, our debts. Our sins there are construed of as debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So a regular feature of our Christian life is that we ask God to forgive us of our debts, to forgive us of our sins. So... If we're to pray that regularly, then it must follow that we're not perfect. <laughs> that perseverance isn't perfection. That's my point, isn't it? This, this, this is a regular breathing exercise in the Christian life. We're, we, we are voicing this prayer to, to the Lord. You know, in the early church, there was a controversy between Pelagius and Augustine. And Pelagius was really a perfectionist. And Augustine, you can still read them today, the anti-Pelagian writings, which are just quite interesting. And I, I haven't read all of them because there's a ton of them if you've, if you've got that volume. 
But I read a lot of it, and again and again in the debate, Augustine appointed, pointed to this text in the Lord's Prayer. And he said, look, Pelagius, perfection is not possible because Jesus taught us to pray this prayer. And I think that's exactly right. We are to regularly pray this prayer, showing that we're sinners. 1 John 1, 8, I think, is a meditation, a reflection on uh, the Lord's Prayer in part. Uh, it is interesting in the epistles to note that they don't typically quote or cite the words of Jesus, but they're often influenced by the words of Jesus. And that's an interesting study in its own right, isn't it? To try to trace the influence of Jesus' words on the epistles. And I think in verse 9 we have a reference to the Lord's Prayer, but let's pick it up at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we're sinless, we're self-deceived, and the, what truth? I think he means here the truth of the gospel is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, very similar to the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? What does it mean to be a believer? It means that we regularly are confessing and admitting our sin before God. If we say, verse 10, we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So perseverance can't be perfection. One one of the things it means to be a Christian, when we think of what sin is, we sin in thought, we, we sin in word, we sin in deed. I think as believers we sin every day. Sin is a significant part of our lives. So perseverance can't mean perfection. Secondly, the second argument is perfection is at the resurrection. I don't have many rhymes, but this one works out. Perfection is at the resurrection. Philippians chapter 3, this verse 11. Here, here we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Paul's talking about himself. And the, the first thing I want to say, even before I read the passage, if Paul wasn't perfect... As great as he was, if Paul wasn't perfect, we're not going to be perfect either. And Paul, Paul wasn't perfect. Chapter 3, verse 11, I'm picking up at the end of the paragraph here in, in chapter 3, picking up verse 11. Really, I'm picking up in the middle of a sentence. But that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Clearly, that verse signifies that the resurrection hasn't happened yet for Paul. He's thinking of any means by which he may attain it. Not that I've already obtained this. That's the resurrection, isn't it? Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. And that's what I want to put together. Not that I've already obtained the resurrection, or or I'm already perfect. I'm arguing that for Paul, those belong together, don't they? When we attain the resurrection, then perfection will be ours. However, you know, we're talking about perseverance here, but I press on to make it my own. Or or that word can be translated, I press on to grasp it. So I'm pressing on, I'm running the race. That's what perseverance is, isn't it? We're running the race to the end. I press on to make it my own or, or to grasp it because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Or I think better translated, Christ Jesus has grasped me. 
He's taken hold of me. I'm, I'm running the race to take hold of that prize because Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have grasped it. I haven't obtained the prize yet. I'm not perfected yet. I haven't, I haven't obtained the resurrection of the dead yet. So what does he do in the meanwhile? But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul, Paul forgets his successes, right? And, and, and his failures, his highs and, and his lows, right? His regrets and his triumphs. He's, he's running that race. And he, he's not looking back, he's looking forward as he, as he perseveres. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, Paul's running that race, and he's recognizing as he runs that race, I haven't attained yet. I haven't arrived yet. When will that arrival take place? My argument is it'll take place at the resurrection. Romans chapter 8, verse 10. Same thing. Romans 8, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. So what does that verse mean? The body is dead because of sin. I think that verse means that sin continues to exist in us as long as it we're in our mortal bodies. I, I don't think the argument is our bodies are sinful per se, in and of themselves. But sin continues to reside in us as long as we're in these corruptible mortal bodies. In other words, right, perfection is ours at the resurrection. The mortality of the body signifies the continuing presence of sin. Remember, the body, in biblical thought, is the whole person. So the body, the bo- I'm not separating the body from the soul, but the body testifies, doesn't it, to, to the fact that we continue to struggle with sin. The body is dead because of sin. The spirit is life because of righteousness. Of course, for Christians, we also have the Holy Spirit. The, 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 our corruptible bodies, our, our sinful selves, that's not the only reality. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does if you're a Christian, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So he casts his eye, doesn't he, to the last day when the spirit will give life to our mortal bodies and raise us from the dead. And then our bodies will no longer be dead because of sin. Because our bodies will be perfected, raised, and sin will be absent. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we struggle with sin. That's not, that perseverance doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. Perseverance doesn't mean that there's not a continuing presence of sin in our lives. Romans 8, verse 23, Paul says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, So, again, we have the Holy Spirit, right? We're new. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we anticipate that day. Meantime, we groan. We groan physically, right? We get sick. We get tired. Eventually, we die. But but I don't think that's disconnected as well from the presence of sin in us. That groaning exists because we're part of the old creation. So perseverance is not perfection. We pray for forgiveness regularly, every day, 
presumably, hopefully. Secondly, uh, there's perfection at the resurrection. Thirdly, the exhortations in the letters, the exhortations in the epistles, show that believers are not yet perfected. So the, the, when I say exhortations, the admonitions, the commands we receive in the letters. If, if, if we were perfect, right, we wouldn't need any exhortations. In, in heaven, there'll be no commandments, will there? We won't need any exhortations. We won't need an exhortation to love or, or anything else. We will, we will be perfected and we will always want to do what's right. I, I had a, Arminian student once at Bethel years ago who argued, no, once we get in heaven, we can retain free will and we can even choose to go to hell again. I mean, that's just totally bizarre, isn't it? I mean, you know, I said, man, you are really committed to your theology, but that's really, I mean, that should, that should convince you right there you're wrong, just what you said. But anyway, anyway, um, yeah, I, how do, I don't want to get off on that point. But so... Uh, let's look at some examples of exhortations. First um, Peter two eleven, uh, one of my favorite verses. Uh, Peter says, "Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's what we are, right? We're we're sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul." So. Sometimes we as Christians, we feel discouraged because we have fleshly passions. We, we, and, and some people might start thinking, well, I'm not a Christian. I can't be a Christian because I have, these, I have these fleshly passions. But Peter tells us right here, doesn't he? That's part of the Christian life. That's a da- there's a daily battle. That battle, you know, when I was a young Christian... I used to think, well, you know, after you're a Christian for a while, you won't struggle with those things anymore. I actually believed when I first became a Christian, I won't struggle with pride anymore, which was utterly naive, wasn't it? So whatever those passions of the flesh are, they continue. They continue how long? Till the day we die. That's how long they continue. How, how intense is the battle? Those passions wage war against our souls. So this is no minor battle, right? That... Perseverance doesn't mean we're not engaged in such a battle, does it? No, we're in a fierce battle with the flesh. And we're called upon to abstain. Now, obviously, the scripture says more than just say no, right? But it gives us a lot of ammunition to say no that I'm not talking about here in terms of understanding the gospel. But part of it is, right, Part of, it, part of what the gospel summons us to do is to say no. That's part of the story. It's not the whole of the story. It's undergirded by all the truths of the gospel. But, but, but there, is, there, there comes a place in our life often where we have to say no. No to this. No to those passions of the flesh. But we still have them. Uh, Galatians 5 verse 17. Very famous passage. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So it's that same reality, isn't it? There's a war. The flesh and spirit are warring in us. There's, a, there's an intense battle going on, and we have to fight that battle. Every day we have to, we have to what? What, is, what does Paul say? 
um, Galatians 5.16, we have to walk, walk in the Spirit, right? Galatians 5.18, what does he say? He says you have to be led by the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, there's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, you have to walk in step with the Spirit. Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, you have to sow to the Spirit. So we know how, how, do, how do we overcome this by, by the Spirit. But we don't overcome it perfectly, do we? And there's that battle going on, and we need those exhortations. Walk in the Spirit. Live in, live in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. So forth and so on. Romans 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I take any means there. If you if you if if the flesh dominates your life, you'll go to hell. I don't think he means physically die. Because of the verse as a whole, I'll read the other part. But if by the spirit, by trusting in the spirit, right? By relying on the spirit, by well, we go back to Galatians, right? Walking in the spirit. Being led by the Spirit, marching in step with the Spirit by sowing to the Spirit, or we can think of Ephesians being filled with the Spirit. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But you've got to put them to death, right? There's a war there. The, 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 the deeds of the flesh must be killed. There's a battle. So we need to trust God's promises using the sword of the Spirit. So perseverance is not perfection because we pray for forgiveness, because perfection is at the resurrection, and because of the exhortations in the letter show we are not yet perfect. Fourthly, even the best Christians, even the best Christians can do better. Even the most mature Christians can improve, which is another sign we're not perfect. James says, Chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, uh, we're justified by works. I'm not here to explain that text in detail. But he says we're justified by works, which I, which I take it means works are necessary. Works are necessary for final justification. Not, they're not optional. They're necessary. How are they necessary? That's an important question. I'd, I'd argue, they, and I'll say more about this in a minute, they, it can't be that they're, ne- they're the necessary basis so I think they're nece- the necessary fruit. They're a necessary evidence that we belong to God. So, But still that passage is very challenging. The next thing James says, chapter 3, verse 2, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, he says, when he's talking about the tongue, for we all stumble in many ways. Uh, that's a very fascinating verse. For we all stumble in many ways. Notice what James says. You all stumble in many ways. That's not what he says. He includes himself. We all. James doesn't say, you bad Christians, you all stumble in many ways, but I don't. No, he says, we. We we all. So if you meet a Christian who says, I, I, don't, I don't sin much. And that's, that's, no. We all. We all. We all stumble. By, that word, by the way, that word stumble, patio, means to sin. Let me, let me go to James 2.10 to prove that. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails, but actually that's the word patio, same word for stumble. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So if you, if you keep the entire law, right, but you stumble in one point, 
You're a lawbreaker, James says. And, and he uses the example. It's really helpful, isn't it? He uses the example of murder and adultery. So that if you, but if you haven't committed adultery, but you've murdered, you're a lawbreaker. So I always use this illustration. You know, imagine you're in, you're in, uh, under trial and you're charged with murder. And you know, you're, you're giving your, you, you have an opportunity as a defendant to give the final defense. And you stand up and say, judge, men and women of the jury, uh, I just want you all to know, yes, I did commit murder, but I didn't commit adultery, right? So, you're a lawbreaker. We don't care if you didn't commit adultery, right? Isn't that what James is saying? You're a lawbreaker if you've broken the law. God demands perfection. Therefore, when he says works are necessary for justification, they can't be the necessary basis since God demands perfection. And that's why we say our righteousness is finally the righteousness of Christ counted to us, imputed to us, credited to us. Our righteousness isn't finally in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Or as Luther says, we're married to Christ. All of who Christ is is ours. That's our righteousness. Back, But back to chapter 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Not just a few ways. Many ways. In many respects, we stumble. I don't... Uh, since James includes himself, I think James was a mature Christian and a godly person. So I think this is true of, 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 of the godliest per- people we know. We, uh, there aren't any, what, you know, we're, there's no perfect seminary teachers, right? Um, I've worked with seminary teachers and pastors for years, and we're flawed, aren't we? We're flawed people. Well, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean there's not maturity and godliness there, but we all stumble in many ways and fall short. First Thessalonians four, verse nine. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. I don't even have to tell you about brotherly love, he says, because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Isn't that a beautiful expression? God Himself has taught you. Isn't that the new covenant? He's put the law in your heart. You want to love one another. God's taught you that. He's he's worked it inside you. For that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. In fact, I see that in your lives. So, So what do we see from this? The Thessalonian church is doing well, right? That's a very good model. What do you say if your church is basically mature and doing well? I mean, honestly, you know, uh, I've, I've been with the church the last 17 years, 18 years or so. Um, I stepped down as the preaching pastor January 1st, 2016, but for 17 years. I mean, the church, is it a perfect church? Absolutely not. But is it a mature church? It is. It just is. There's a lot of godly, wonderful people in our church. I mean, what do you say to people that are doing well? Well, what does Paul say? But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul says, you can always do better. Right? We don't say, well, you've you've arrived. You're perfect. I can't say that about myself, right? I'm as loving as I need to be. I've attained. I've I've reached it. None of us can say that, can we? We, There's always room for growth. And so so that's a fascinating 
model, I think, for, for encouraging someone um, in the ministry to say, look, you can do better. As long as we're in this life, no matter how mature a person is, they can, they can grow. That, that's exciting, I think, too. You know, I've been a Christian since 1971. How many years is that? I don't know, 46 or something like that. But, you know, I can still grow. I can, I can become more mature. I can, I can grow in godliness. And that's what Peter says, Second Peter 3, verse 18, a very famous verse. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's true for all of us. We can continue to grow in grace and in knowledge un, until the end. So perseverance is not perfection, right? We, we pray regularly. Every day, for the forgiveness of our sins, we're taught that perfection is at the resurrection. The, secondly, thirdly, the exhortations in the letters show we are not yet perfect. And, and fourthly, even, even the most mature Christians can do better. Fifth, the fifth one's rather similar to the second one, but it's a little bit different. It's a little, perfection will be ours on the last day. Perfection will be ours in the last day. Well, of course, you know, perfection isn't the resurrection. That's my second point. But this is kind of like shaking the kaleidoscope again, right? And looking at it from just a little different angle. So let's see what, what Paul says. And, yeah, I guess there – well, I have one from John. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is that great chapter on husbands and wives. And, of course, he starts speaking about Christ's atonement – how he cleanses his bride. He gave himself up for the church and cleanses it. Verse 27, that's where I want to pick up. So that, so that Christ might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Of course, this is like a wedding, isn't it? And the bride... Comes up the aisle, beautiful and perfect and without blemish, right? Now, but, of course, he's speaking here of the church. When does this presentation take place? I would say it's eschatological. It's the end-time presentation. Right now, every church has spots and wrinkles and blemishes, Right? Our churches now, they have those spots and wrinkles and blemishes, but they won't on the last day. On the last day, there's going to be that end-time presentation, and she'll be holy and without blemish. Of course, God's working now in the church, right? And he's transforming the church. But there's going to be a day where there's this end-time presentation, Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, it's very similar. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's now reconciled you, I'm sorry, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. So there it is again. I think, again, that's the end time presentation. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And my argument is that's going to happen on the last day. Another text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. So, right, there's room for growth, right? We see that there. 
That's a theme we looked at already. For one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. When's that going to happen? When are you going to be blameless in holiness? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So that, that blamelessness is not, does not belong to the church now. I taught, I taught my first job, amazingly, was at Azusa Pacific University, which is in Southern California. I say amazingly because Azusa Pacific is uh, supported by seven uh, Armenian denominations. So, and um, I, I'm, I'm Reformed, and I was Reformed then. And um, I desperately needed a job. You know, I was a graduate of, uh, of Fuller Seminary. I sent out over 100 resumes and... I didn't get a job from any of those. I didn't even apply to Susan. It was 20 minutes down the road because I thought, well, I'm reformed. The school will never hire me. But they were desperate. It was August. They didn't have things worked out. So they, so they were desperate, and they hired me. We actually got along rather well, despite having uh, differences of opinion. I really believe in the sovereignty of God. Here, I, as a Calvinist, got hired at a Wesleyan school. You know? God is sovereign. You never know what he's going to do. But anyway, um, you know, they, in their theology is this idea of uh, entire sanctification. It was quite interesting teaching there because I never met a single person who claimed to have attained it, you know. (laughs) It was in the theology, but it really wasn't in the practice. So it really wasn't a big deal there. I mean, they would say theoretically they held to it, Right? But no one would ever claim to be there. So, you know, that's sort of an empty set, isn't it? Okay. But, you know, one of the verses they use is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, well, look, you know, there's a prayer there for entire sanctification. But I think they're misinterpreting that verse. Because the next verse says, he who calls you is faithful, so there's preservation, he will surely do it. And I would argue that that entire sanctification that's spoken of there is eschatological. He will surely do it on the last day. That when there's the eschatological presentation, I think it's over-reading this verse to say there's a prayer for entire sanctification and therefore it's possible in this life. No, that's, a, that's an end-time reality. And I think that fits as well with 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, 1 John 3, verse 2, which is a gr- glorious privilege, isn't it? And what we, we will be has not yet appeared. Right? What will it be like? We all have thought of this, right? What will it be like? What will it be like in the nitty-gritty? What will it feel like? After our death and resurrection, what will it feel like to be in the new creation? There's a great curtain there, isn't there? I mean, it's very, like, we'll, we'll have fellowship with God. We'll see his face. That's, those are great, comforting promises. But the details, they're hidden from us, aren't they? It hasn't yet appeared, John says. There's, there's a curtain there. But we know, what do we know? That when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We know that we'll be perfected, right? Which implies we're not completely like him now. 
surely. When we see him, there'll be some transforming action that takes place. That's the eschatological presentation, isn't it? When we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Then we'll be perfected, but we're not perfected now. So, perseverance is not perfection because first, we pray for forgiveness regularly. Second, perfection is at the resurrection. Thirdly, the exhortations and the letters show we are not yet perfect. Fourthly, even the best Christians and the most mature Christians can do better. And fifth, perfection will be ours on the last day. And sixth and finally, here's, and I won't go through all those points again in case you're tired of hearing them. (laughs) Sixthly, let's talk about some examples in Scripture. Let's give some, some, some illustrations of what I'm talking about. And my first illustration is Zechariah. I'm going to give one example outside of Scripture, too. So Zechariah, the Zechariah of Luke, Zechariah and Elizabeth, you know, the the, uh, parents of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I mean, they were remarkable, weren't they? Older couple, you can picture them, can't you, just from people you've known? Walking with the Lord for years, godly, mature, loving, wise. I mean, you just want to have dinner with Zechariah and Elizabeth, don't you? They, they, they are wonderful. But he wasn't perfect, right? We learn that in this very chapter. Because Zechariah goes in the temple, right, to offer incense, and an angel appears to him and tells him, He's going to have a son. And Zechariah says, verse 18, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. That's impossible. That can happen. That's what he's saying. Thank you very much, but I don't think so. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. How do I know this? What is Gabriel's answer? I'm an angel, right? Appearing to you to tell you this. When did that ever happen to you before? Never, right? I stand in the presence of God. God sent me to speak to you and to bring you this good news. For Pete's sake, right? What do you mean you don't believe that? I was sent by God to tell you. And behold, you'll be silent. Unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Because you didn't trust God. Now look, what is that? Is that like just a heavy, heavy punishment? That, 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 that being struck so he couldn't speak is also for the sake of the other people, right? So they'll say, hey, something happened in there. So, and that, that's exactly what they say. It's not a, you know, it happened for nine months. Was, was Zechariah still pleasing to God? Absolutely. Did God, was, was he still a righteous man? Absolutely. But he's a sinner, wasn't he? He fell short. He fell short of what God required. So, you know, that perseverance, we, we see clearly here, perseverance is not, is not the same thing as, uh, as perfection. Um, here's another way of putting it. In Hebrews 11, so, you know, we, I looked at the warning passages yesterday, but it, how does Hebrews 11 fit in to the warning passages? If you think of the book as a whole, because 
the warning passages are nothing other than a call to faith. The warning passages are nothing other than a call to trust God. The, the warning passages are not a call to works, but to trust and belief, aren't they? So by faith, Abraham obeyed. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Moses said, I'm throwing in my lot with the people of God because there's greater treasure and pleasure there. So, so the warnings are a call to believe, aren't they? Not a call to work, fundamentally, but a call to believe. But what, what I want to talk about here, just a little bit, time's going by. So let, let's, talk, let's pick out, you know, the Hall of Fame of Faith, Gideon, Barak, Sam, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. They were all very fascinating, but let's just talk about Samson. Samson! Samson's in the Hall of Faith. Really? Really? I had an Old Testament professor who was a friend of mine who was a little bit like Martin Luther. He'd speak hyperbolically, you know. Luther would talk like that, you know. And so he, he said to me once, Samson ought not to be in there. Because, because you read the Old Testament, there's no way he was a person of faith, right? Well, I'm going with the author of Hebrews, right? I'm not going with the Old Testament professor, you know, as much as I respect him. Because I think Hebrews is right. Samson, Samson is a man of faith, but is he ever flawed? He is so deeply flawed, but he persevered to the end. And he was saved. Because of his perseverance. Does, does, the, does the author of Judges tell us this? Yes, he does. Because our, after, after that terrible defection with Delilah. Such a terrible defection. Because he already did that with the first Philistine woman, right? Remember the first one begs him to tell the secret and he does. And he goes through it again. <laughs> like, did he learn anything from the first time? Apparently not, because so, he gives in again when she starts begging him. Of course, there are other problems in his life, right? We're not talking about, you know, just significant problems. But what does the author tell us? Judges chapter 16, verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So, why does he tell us that? We all know why he tells us that. That's where his strength comes from, Right? It's not just he's not just interested in hair, is he? That means God's still with him, right? God has not abandoned him after all that. His strength is coming back. So when his life ends, he's pleasing God, right? He puts his hands on the pillars. We already know from the example with Delilah, you put your hands on the pillars and God's not with you, nothing. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen, but God's with him. Puts his hands on the pillars and everything collapses. So, yeah, faith to the end, right? Perseverance isn't perfection. Samson reminds us of that. But it is perseverance. And Samson did persevere, didn't he? As flawed as he was. Now, we're not talking about perfection, but we really are talking about perseverance. Then, just two more things quickly. Peter's, let's talk about Peter. Jesus says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. Well, Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times. I want to think for a moment about Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied him. Aren't they the same? No, they're not. How are they different? Judas planned it. 
He sketched it out in his mind, didn't he? He met with people, talking about it. There was a plan that took shape in his heart and life for some time, and he carried it out. What did Peter say the very night he denied Jesus? I'll die with you. I'll die. I'm with you all the way. Was Peter planning on denying Jesus? Did he say that day, I'll just deny Jesus and then I'll ask for forgiveness? That's not what he did. He said, I'm with you to the end. And then when the moment came, he collapsed. <laughs> didn't he? Didn't, he didn't plan it. He fell remarkably. But he's restored, isn't he? Clearly, Jesus restored him. John 21. He's restored. He's forgiven. So we have to read what Scripture says when it says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. We have to read it in a thick sense instead of a thin sense, right? We have to have a full-orbed understanding of that instead of a, a weak understanding of that. And the full-orbed understanding of it is, yes, yes, you will be denied by Jesus if you fully and finally deny him. There's forgiveness. I mean, I had a student uh, once who came to me and thought he had committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because he was engaged. His girlfriend broke up with him, and he said to God, I hate you when that happened. That's horrendous, isn't it? It's a horrific sin. It's, it's heinous to say to God, I hate you. But he repented, didn't he? He turned from his sin to God. So he's forgiven. So my last story, then if you have any comments, questions, um, my last story is, it comes from Thomas Cranmer, the great architect of the English Reformation. And Cranmer was, was an amazing man in so many ways. When Queen Mary got in power, though, Queen Mary's design, as you know, if you know the story, Queen Mary had decided, no matter what, I'm going to kill Cranmer. Cranmer didn't know that. She put him in prison. And she said, I want you to sign a recantation. Cranmer was a coward, like all of us, right? He was a coward, and he signed it. <laughs> he wanted to live. We all understand it. So he signed the recantation. Mary was delighted. Let's bring him out to church and have him read it. <laughs> what good PR, right? Bring him out, have him read it in front of everyone. So yeah, she brought him out. But one thing she didn't know, the Holy Spirit was working on him, right? He was a believer. He trusted in Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicted him. I shouldn't have done that. So when he got up in church to read, he recanted his recantation, right? So he said, no, no, no. I'm, I'm here all the way. So uh, what a marvelous moment. And at least the story goes, some people dispute this, whether it really happened. But the story, as it's told, is when, when he was burned at the stake, well, it was an awful way to die, right? Then, but he put... He put his hand that signed the recantation first on the fire to say, I'm sorry I did that. So he persevered, didn't he? De denying Jesus is a final and full denial. There can be temporary significant lapses in our lives as there were with Samson. So all of that is just to say we don't want to misunderstand what we're talking about. Yes, we're to persevere to the end. But it's not a call to works, it's a call to faith. It's not a call to perfection, it's a call to perseverance. So, any comments or questions? Anything you want to say?